Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, after a very long delay, we are finally picking up with the last third of the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So a quick refresher before we get underway. Uh, Last year in our first season of Queen of the Sciences, we did an episode on the first two thirds of Acts. And the reason we did so is because there is a definite plot line that extends from chapter one to chapter 19, the early part of 19. And it's basically this, the Holy Spirit marches out from Jerusalem outward and one by one gathers in all the estranged communities of the earth back into God's kingdom and purposes. Now, it's not every individual and every group, but there is a distinct logic of each estranged group being brought back to God. So the first group is the good Jews, as I call them, the ones gathered in Jerusalem for worship on the day of Pentecost, the the Jewish holiday of Pentecost before it became the Christian holiday of Pentecost. Um, And there, of course, is deep irony in that, that God's own people were estranged and were the first ones to be gathered back in by the Holy Spirit. The next group to be gathered by the Holy Spirit is what I like to call the bad Jews, namely the Samaritans, the mixed up tribe from the former northern kingdom of Israel. Philip the evangelist goes up there, starts preaching. People believe, get baptized. Then Peter and John come down, lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's our first case of a marginally, not quite, but still sort of Jewish community. That's quickly followed by what I call the new Jews, a category that is symbolized by the Ethiopian. Ethiopian eunuch. He is, in fact, a proselyte and convert to Judaism. He's just been in Jerusalem praying and worshiping at the temple. And when Philip finds him, he is reading the book of Isaiah and trying to figure it out. Philip reveals to him that it means Jesus, who was just crucified and raised from the dead. And the Ethiopian eunuch is promptly baptized. Then we have the big long drama of the non-Jews being brought into God's saving purposes by the Holy Spirit. That starts with Cornelius the Gentile and his uh, vision being sent to Peter and Peter somewhat reluctantly accepting him, but then being a real champion for all of the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And finally, this whole arc of the plot within Acts ends in chapter 19 when John's Jews are brought into the story. Paul comes across some Ephesian disciples who had not even known there was a Holy Spirit, which prompts Paul to ask, then what were you baptized into? And they said into John's baptism. And that explains that they had not heard about the upgrade to the true Messiah and his baptism. They received baptism in Christ's name, received the Holy Spirit. And at that point, It is accomplished. The Holy Spirit has gathered in every group on earth. The good Jews, the bad Jews, the new Jews, the non-Jews, and John's Jews. And that's where we start today. Okay, good. That was a rapid-fire run through the plot line of the first 19 chapters of Acts. Now what's ahead of us here? So... One person we have not accounted for, or I have not accounted for in this retelling is, of course, Paul. Paul makes his first appearance at the very end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, with the stoning of Stephen. And we know, of course, that he's a super duper bad guy. He immediately starts persecuting Christians and hauling them off to prison. But then in chapter 9, he is arrested, not by human authorities, but by Jesus himself in a vision on the road to Damascus. And, um, is immediately brought to a Christian home after three days of, well, after a certain period of fasting, the scales fall from his eyes, he is baptized, and he becomes a preacher of Jesus Christ. And so from then on, we have Paul's story start to interweave with this uh, Holy Spirit gathering story that I'm talking about. So what we see here is like um, two sides of the rainbow arcing together. The story begins entirely in Jerusalem and centered around Peter. And the story will end entirely in in Rome and centered around Paul. And then in the middle parts of the story, there's this kind of uh, overlapping interweaving that happens between their two stories. And what's interesting is that in this um, middle portion where it, where um, Luke, or the author of Acts, um, alternates back and forth between a more Peter-centered story and a more Paul-centered story, is that uh, Paul in th- those sections is working primarily in partnership. So we have him hitching up with Barnabas, and they go around. Barnabas, in fact, kind of defends him against some of his skeptics, and they do some missions that involve both um 
going to synagogues, but also reaching out to Gentile communities. And, um, and Paul declares greater and greater intention to go to the Gentiles only. He gets fed up pretty easily with his fellow Jews. And then he and Barnabas have a rather um, dramatic parting of the ways. And then Paul takes up with Silas and Timothy for a while. Their names you can see in some of the Pauline epistles. So that was a known partnership as well. But by the time we're getting to the Ephesus story of uh, the disciples of John, which is where we're, we're really picking up our attention today, Paul seems to be emerging more as a solo figure. And he's going to have a kind of more heroic single figure aspect from this point onward. Dad, I know you, uh, you're you more of the historical critical expert here than I am. I'm curious, what do you make of the Acts reporting rather openly on Paul's uh, irascible personality and difficulty getting along with Barnabas while seeming to give a maybe rosier picture of his reception in Jerusalem than might have actually been the case? Yeah, that's very interesting. I have to mention here the 19th century historical critical pioneer, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who famously, kind of in the spirit of Hegel, interpreted the books of Book of Acts as the early Catholic synthesis. The early Catholic Church was kind of a nomenclature for the church that emerged, the Gentile church that emerged at the end of the first century. But Peter represents Jewish Christianity and the Pauline mission to the Gentiles came into opposition to the Jewish Christianity of Peter and James. And the book of Acts written by Luke then was the synthesis that harmonized the conflict between Paul on the one side with the Gentile mission and Peter and James on the other side with the Jewish heritage of the early church. And so the Luke of, you, you can't read the book of Acts as if it were a literal narrative history of what actually happened. It's written at the end of a development, seeing a synthesis of Jewish and, 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 and New Testament, or Pauline, a, a synthesis of Petrine and Pauline impulses in the new development of early Catholicism as a predominantly Gentile phenomenon. And I think Bauer's historical critical reinterpretation of Acts has really dominated scholarship ever since his day, which is why I'm kind of excited, Sarah, about some of the literary critical perspectives on the conclusion of the book of Acts that you've discovered. And I think they give us an, an alternative way of reading or understanding the meaning of the book of Acts. All right. Well, we are headed in that direction. I should just mention, though, I mean, it's it's curious about the Pauline Petrine synthesis thing, because as soon as the, the Jerusalem Council concludes, Peter vanishes. Like Peter and with his sidekick, John, are very dominant throughout the first half of the book. But then it's just gone. Like, we don't find out whatever happens to them. There's no, uh, like, uh, Paul. The Paul's death is alluded to constantly throughout the last part of Acts, even though we don't actually see it happen at the end. But, you know, even though there's, of course, a tradition of, of Peter being crucified upside down in Rome by the early church, there's, I mean, he just vanishes. The story is over for Peter. So um, it's, it's not just a, something else is going on here. Something else is calling the shots rather than trying to, uh, you know, reconcile to, uh, Two, two martyrs who had a hard time getting along. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe the, the early Catholic synthesis is that Paul supersedes Peter, which would correspond to the narrative course of the book of Acts. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I never thought about that. Do you think that's borne out in, in the way uh, the, the early church speaks theologically and organizes itself? I mean, is it basically Gentiles over Jews? Is that what that means? I don't know what that means, but I'm just saying, you know, it's very curious in Acts 15 that it's James and Peter who are speaking up for justification by faith and the law-free gospel. And Paul yeah. is practically silent at the apostolic council, so-called, reported in Acts 15. So there's some curious stuff going on here, and it's hard to square with the evidence we have from Paul's own letters. Right. True, true. And when uh, Paul comes to Jerusalem, we'll get to this in the, the latter part of Acts, um, he, he behaves very Jewishly at, at a request and invitation. So 
Yeah, just to segue to the literary approach to the book of Acts, two, two quick comments. Luke Acts is beautiful literature. When you read all the literature of the New Testament and even compare it with Greco-Roman histories of the same time period, Luke is a stylist in the Greek language who produces a piece of beautiful literature. Quite secular literary critics have read Luke Acts and said, pronounced the word beautiful. It's just a beautiful piece of work in terms of writing. What's interesting is that literary critics can read Luke Acts and they're not preoccupied with the question of historicity. Is this what really happened? No, they're reading it as literature. And when they read it as literature, they find the narrative course to be filled with engagements that continually bring a reader in, invite a reader in to the narrative world, and with every twist and turn being uh, pleasurable in a literary sense, a beautiful piece of work. And I think that is uh, uh, an observation well worth keeping. If we read Luke Acts as literature rather than history in the modern sense of the word, in which we're holding it up to the standard of accurate representations of what actually happened, as if we knew. It's a kind of an alien standard. We can get into the issues of historical reference versus representation if we like, but I just simply want to make the point that we can appreciate the book of Acts in particular and its otherwise very unsatisfying conclusion. Why doesn't it tell us about the death of Paul? Everything's been pointing to Paul's dying in Rome, and instead it stops right before the thing we most want to learn about. Why is that? Well, maybe its purpose is not a historical record of what actually happened. Maybe it has a somewhat different literary-slash-theological purpose. Hint, hint for the listener. So yes, hint, hint. yes, we'll be getting there. And like with any good story, and I, I echo everything you say, Dad, it's a really good read. So again, if you haven't spent much time with X, just pick it up and read it through like a novel. It's really exciting. But like any good novel, you have to understand, you have to follow the whole buildup until you, before you get to the conclusion, if you're really going to appreciate the payoff. So what we'll, we'll start out now spending some time in this, this uh, buildup from basically chapter 19 through 27 of what is what is taking Paul towards the the ending which as dad alluded to may not be exactly what you were hoping for and while we get there so dad as I was um I noticed this before when I was reading Acts but this time when I was rereading this portion in preparation I really paid attention to this particular theme rule of law and due process like I know what could be more boring than that but because of um certain concerns in our world today, I will say elusively, (laughs) I was suddenly really struck by how central to this final plot line of Acts is proper procedure and alternate visions of how um, public authority governance and violence can work. So, for instance, uh, right in chapter 19, well, well, after the uh, the, ba- the baptism in Jesus' name of the Ephesian disciples, there is this, I, I have to say, one of my most favorite Bible stories. It is hilarious. The sons of Siva, who, uh, oh, yeah. who <laughs> they're unbelieving exorcists who find out that Jesus' name seems to be useful. They treat it like it's uh, either magic or like, I don't know, like scientific medicine or something. So they try to exercise in Jesus' name and the evil spirit response to them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Rah! And then he jumps out on them and they're they're bloodied and beaten and run away naked. It's it's really funny. <laughs> right. It reminds me of Ghostbusters. <laughs> but anyway, then um, well, the, the result of that is that all these uh, magical artisans or, or people who practice magic as well as producing tokens for magic burn them all in this massive bonfire and the amount of wealth destroyed in the process is huge. So the, the, the silversmiths who create little figurines of Artemis to whom there was this huge temple in Ephesus, freak out that this new religion is going to destroy their business. Man, is that ever a recurring theme in history? 
So there, a riot breaks out in Ephesus, and they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, on and on and on. And Paul wants to go out and talk to them because he's clearly out of his mind. And his friends were like, you can't talk to a, a mob. It will not work. And I'm sure they're right. But then, so this is the really interesting conclusion to the this crisis at Ephesus. This is what I found so fascinating. So the town clerk, so an appointed Roman authority, comes out and quiets the crowd and, first of all, calms them down and says, you know, Artemis is fine. She's the great goddess. Nothing can stop her. And then he appeals to due process. He says, if, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And then he dismisses them. So this is the first of many appeals to the proper execution of public justice, even when religion is involved. And I I have to say, I was just completely intrigued by this, partly because we always hear of Rome as the great big bad guy. I mean, after all, Pilate is the one who finally decides to execute Jesus. But in Acts, we have a much more complex and subtle appreciation of the role of public government, even Roman. Well, even the historical apostle Paul had that appreciation, which he expressed in the 13th chapter of Romans, when he taught that all governing authorities are instituted by God and that it's a matter of Christian conscience to render a proper obedience. So this appreciation of due process when it is opposed to vigilante justice or mob violence, I think is entirely congruent with the historical Apostle Paul. The difficulty always is, of course, as you alluded to the fact that it was the legal process under Pontius Pilate that crucified Jesus. And as we suspect, it was the legal process that eventually had Paul beheaded uh, in Rome under Nero. If it was the legal process, the legal process is always uh, subject to this qualification. If it is executed in accord with the divine purpose to defend the weak and to punish the wicked, if not, if, if the behavior of the state is itself a corrupt and it is itself using due process to institute and preserve injustice, the great discussion in the United States these days, of course, is about uh, 90 years of Jim Crow segregation law, which was due process used legally to oppress African-American people, especially in the American South. Uh, So that conscientious duty to obey the state when the state itself obeys its divine mandate, it seems to me, would also indicate a conscientious Christian duty not to take justice into your own hands, nor uh, any kind of vigilante uh, or mob rioting or anything like that, but a conscientious duty to publicly disobey unjust laws. Today, on the day we're recording this in the United States, is the funeral of Congressman John Lewis. And the eulogies for him are sounding out quite truthfully how how devoted he was to Martin Luther King's principle of nonviolent resistance. Good trouble is when you disobey out of conscience unjust laws in order to make the society confront its deeply embedded injustices. So that's that's different from vigilante justice like the Ku Klux Klan. That's different from mob violence like the rioters in the American cities recently. It's a different way. And when Paul finally refuses to deny Christ and suffers execution at the hands of the state, that is an example of conscientious disobedience. 
it, it's been so easy to just talk about Rome as the great big bad guy. And of course, Rome is the one that executed Jesus. I'm not disputing that. But that's exactly what I found so fascinating in this part of Acts is that it's a much more complex appreciation of the problem. So like you said, this is a case where I think Acts and the authentic Pauline letters really stack up. There is an, an accord here between Romans 13 and the narrative of Paul actually having a clean conscience towards the Roman state that he engages with. It is not perfect as we're going to see there are definitely some some issues in Rome's execution of its its own justice but the foil is also as you said the alternative is mob violence so you know it, the one of the messages seems to be if it's a choice between mob violence and ambush in the night on the one hand or a bureaucratic state with due process with um, somewhat indifferent leaders who are susceptible to corruption. Well, neither is great, but it's really easy to choose which is better. And that's what we're <laughs> going to see unfolding in the next few chapters. Yeah, I think you're right. So go ahead with the story. Right. So we have um, uh, the next portion is is Paul's in Macedonia and Greece. There's another really hilarious story of Paul preaching for too long. So the young man Eutychus falls asleep during the sermon, falls out of a third story window and plummets to his death. But um, I guess uh, preachers who go on too long are granted the extraordinary grace of reviving people they've killed with their long <laughs> preaching. I'm sure I'm sure Luke included that story as comic relief for all patient churchgoers listening through long sermons. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I like to think there's some some good humor in this book. Um, and then there's this long parting from the Ephesian elders. Um, and here we have a few mentions of the Holy Spirit, who also sort of recedes from the story along with Peter. Um, I, I think again because because Luke's focus for the Holy Spirit is primarily on the ingathering of all the estranged communities from this point on, the Holy Spirit is reported as having given direction about where to go, but doesn't so much appear as a primary actor in the story. But Sarah, I, one, yes, one, one comment there, though, about the, what the Holy Spirit does in these final, this final third of the book of Acts is constantly forewarn, predict, uh, not only to Paul, but through other prophets talking to Paul, that he awaits a terrible fate, what be it in Jerusalem or in Rome. Right. Actually, this is I'm a little bit curious about. So Paul is warned by others in the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem because he's going to be attacked there. And he appear, apparently disobeys and goes on anyway. I'm a little baffled by that. Then Agabus comes along and says, okay, then the Jews in Jerusalem will hand you over to the Gentiles. But it seems like initially Paul is going on to Jerusalem when he's been warned in the Holy Spirit not to, but, but through other people. Paul does not deny the fact in the warning, uh, but this uh, is a matter of his divine destiny that he, the Greek verb day, it is necessary, uh, appears in these passages, predicting his suffering just like in the passion predictions of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Right. And that's definitely not accidental. Right. So, so then, uh, I don't know, probably uh, some of you out there, especially if you went to a Christian school, had to do these maps of the missionary journeys of Paul when you were kids, connecting all these Greek cities and not having any idea what it meant. So you, you can go online and see lots of interesting uh, charts of, of where Paul goes. And it, it does read a bit like, you know, just a merchant ship sailing from port to port. And the narrator who suddenly starts speaking in the voice of we reports, we stopped here and then we stopped here and then we stopped here. I did read somewhere that that shifting over to the we doesn't necessarily mean that Luke the physician, the, you know, the traditional author of Luke and Acts, um, caught up with Paul at this point and is is narrating what he himself witnessed, but that we is the standard pronoun used for narrating sea voyages. I don't I don't know how um how certain or how widespread that um conclusion is, but that that may be one reason why we suddenly have this we language at this point in Acts. Finally, Paul comes to um, Jerusalem. So, so this is an interesting one. I'll, Dad, I'll be curious what you think about it. So it records Paul visiting James. Um, this is presumably the brother of the Lord who has been, you know, the, the, the elder at the Jerusalem council and seems to be the anchor of the church in Jerusalem. And it says that they receive Paul gladly. They're really delighted at all the Gentiles coming in to believe. But apparently they're still having some struggles with 
Jewish believers who don't quite get what's going on here. And so what um, James narrates is uh, they are all zealous for the law, you know, which is how a good Jew should be. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So this is not just about making Gentiles take on the law of Moses, but telling Jews who are maybe somewhat more assimilated or living in Gentile communities, ah, you don't have to bother with that Jewish stuff anymore. Then James continues, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. This seems to be an allusion to a Nazarite vow, like Samson. Occasionally, like John the Baptist seems to be like a quasi-Nazarite in some way. Um, and you had to go to the temple to be released from a Nazarite vow. And of course, that meant shaving your head. You know, that's why Samson lost out to Delilah, because she cut his hair. So it seems that Paul is being asked to do a, not just an ordinary Jewish rite, but like a very particular, highly committed, special kind of thing. And and to, you know, participate with them, pay in their expenses and basically undergo a kind of Jewish ritual activity in the temple to prove his bona fides. So given <laughs> Paul's furious refusal to compromise with the Judaizers, as they're called in Galatians, what do you make of this little episode, Dad? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard for me to uh, say anything else but Ferdinand Christian Bauer. <laughs> this is James... This is James advising Paul to be a Jew to a Jew and not a Greek to a Jew. Now, there's some there, there is some plausibility in it because the statement, I was a Greek to a Greek and a Jew to a Jew, is Paul's own statement. Right, so right. I, I think it's historically imaginable that Paul would have been willing to publicly uh, exhibit behavior that would identify him as a law-observant Jew in this circumstance, and that James was trying to protect him from the consequences of the slanderer, the the slander against him, I think you know it's it's conceivable to me. Uh, but I think at this point, that's all I want to say about it. <laughs> Well, one thing that really leapt out at me, you know, again, I, I can't say any more specifically either, though, again, Paul is more opposed to forcing Gentiles to keep the law of Moses than he's committed to making Jews stop keeping the law of Moses. Like that latter point doesn't seem to be such a concern. But what it did remind me is that the temple is still standing. And throughout Acts, we see Jesus believers at the temple preaching in it, praying in it, I don't know, possibly participating in sacrifices in it. So the temple is not going to be destroyed until 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And retrospectively, the destruction of the temple is important in the New Testament literature and certainly important in Christian polemic against um, non-Jesus believing Judaism ever after with this kind of like, you see, God destroyed the temple, you can't offer your sacrifices, therefore your religion has been terminated and forever invalidated, you know, a refusal to accept the rabbinic transfer, um, spiritual transfer of what happens with the sacrificial animals in the temple to the rites of home and synagogue, which is how normative Judaism as we know it today evolved. But there's this 40-year block when it's still possible to think about the temple as a place for Jesus believers to go, and it doesn't yet have this, you know, it's all over kind of quality to it. So um, it, it, to me, it's a curious question. Like, you know, we always talk about Jesus being the final sacrifice, but did these earliest disciples and apostles think that way? Or is that something that comes with retrospective knowledge? Do you have any thoughts on that? Again, it's, uh, I, I very much hesitate to make any kind of historical judgments. Uh, I know that if the letter to the Hebrews comes out of Alexandrian, Alexandria in Egypt, which was a, had a greater Jewish population than the land of Palestine did at the time. It is arguing that Jesus' death constitutes the perfect sacrifice that fulfills all the rites of sacrifice and therefore cancels them. But of course, that's written after the destruction of the temple, and we should remind ourselves that 
that Luke-Acts is also written after the failure of the Jewish revolt, uh, which may be symbolized in the mob violence that Luke is portraying in the book of Acts uh, and the temple's destruction. So it's, it's, it's difficult to sort out. For me, it's difficult to sort out the difference between Luke's later perspective looking back and what might have been going on in the Jerusalem church under the leadership of James. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll just leave that there as an, an interesting question mark for the, the uh, mysteries of history. Well, James's effort fails because the crowd completely freaks out when they see Paul and they claim this is the man who was teaching everywhere against the people and the law in this place. He brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. So they seize Paul, drag him out of the temple, shut the gates, and they seek to kill him. And then the rule of law intervenes again. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. They stopped them from beating Paul. They instead take Paul away. They basically arrest him to rescue him from the mob violence. Um, Paul then asks if he can speak to the crowd. The tribune is startled that he can speak Greek. So like Paul addresses the Roman tribune in Greek that, you know, that was the common language rather than Latin at this time. And the Tribune has mistaken Paul for an Egyptian who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul says, no, no, no. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So please let me speak to the people. So then with the Tribune at his side, uh, again, ready to rescue him through the means of arrest if necessary, Paul turns and speaks to the, the mob in Hebrew or, you know, probably Aramaic, letting them, telling them his whole story. Now, this is interesting. I realized, in, again, in rereading Acts, that Paul's Damascus conversion story is reported three times in the book of Acts. It's reported in nine when it actually happens. But here in Acts 22, we have Paul telling the story himself, again, in pretty expansive detail, and then it will be told again one more time. So if we remember that, although, as you mentioned, Luke is a brilliant uh, literary writer who clearly put, you know, paper to pen or pen to paper or quill to parchment or however that was done back then, um, he is nevertheless writing something that people will primarily engage with by hearing it, not by reading it. And so you can always tell in ancient literature that something is important when it's repeated in detail multiple times. For someone who's used to being able to search things on the internet, that seems a little bit tedious. Like, why did you have to tell the <laughs> Damascus story three times? But it's so that people hearing it know, like, the conversion of Paul on the road to the Ma Damascus is the linchpin of his life. You have to know this story. It's that important. Once again, uh, they um, are not convinced, even though Paul appeals to their common faith as Jews, and they are furious, and they they begin to riot again, shouting, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And they shout and throw off their cloaks and fling dust in the air. Gosh. So um, the Tribune decides that Paul must be a bad guy after all, if he's making the Jews freak out so badly. So he brings him into the barracks and says he should be examined by flogging. <laughs> So uh, there's a slightly questionable practice of Roman justice there. Due process, Sarah, due process. Due process. Well, yeah, I guess this was their due process. Uh, just for the record, torture never procures the desired result. Anyway, but then Paul says to a centurion who's hanging out nearby, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So this is interesting. Paul once again calls up due process and throws it back uh, at the people who are flogging him. And the centurion challenges the tribune and says, this man is a Roman citizen. The tribune says, I bought my citizenship. Paul says, I was born with my citizenship. And then the tribune is afraid because he realizes that he is treated like a plebe, someone who is actually a citizen and should not have been flogged. So, but again, what's really interesting to me there is it's exactly the violation of due process, at least for a citizen, that is the next kind of movement in the story forward. Good observation, yes. 
So then then what happens is Paul once again uh, confronts some of the Jewish leaders, primarily the temple leaders. But this is interesting. We have another problem with due process because, as we know, there are factions within the Jewish leadership. And so Paul speaks to a mixed group of Sadducees and Pharisees, and he says, I'm in trouble because I preached a resurrection of the dead. At which point the Sadducees are like, uh-oh, this guy's bad news. But the Pharisees are like, hey, 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 there's nothing wrong with this guy. Maybe a spirit did speak to him or an angel. Come on, he's preaching the resurrection. So uh, Paul very cleverly pits these two factions against each other. But because um, they're still afraid that Paul is going to be attacked by mob violence, the soldiers decide to like st- stow him away in the barracks overnight to keep him safe. And then this is where the other turning point in Paul's life happens. So if the first turning point is his road to Damascus experience, then this is is its companion at this point in Acts. And this is in chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So this is the point at which we are assured that Paul's story is not going to end with the mob violence in Jerusalem. It's going to move all the way on to Rome. And that's setting us up, as as you have alluded to, setting us up for a confrontation in Rome. But specifically, it says that Paul is going to testify in Rome. It says that he must testify. That's that verb, that Greek verb, dei, again. Uh, It is necessary, uh, signaling the divine plan for Paul, that his life will end in parallel to the way the life of his Lord ended. Well, I, no, I don't think that's quite right. I think it's really striking. When Jesus has his passion predictions, it's very clear. He says, he will be killed, crucified, but on the third day rise. Uh-huh. But Paul's is different. It says, you you have testified about me in Jerusalem. You will also testify about me in Rome. What we actually don't have is a prediction of his death. So even though we're going to see Paul's death is talked about a lot in this part of Acts, it's not specifically connected to this prophecy of, of being in Rome. Right. Okay. The next um, sections all sort of fit together. So what happens is because the mob has failed to take out Paul, there is a plot among more than 40 Jews who have decided that they're going to neither eat nor drink until they kill Paul. So they must still be very hungry and thirsty all these years later because they fail in their effort. We hear that Paul had a sister and the sister had a son who was able to go and Again, appeal to due process. Um, So Paul gets his nephew to go to the centurion, who then reports on this plot to kill Paul. And the... They, the tribune does not want this to happen. He knows what he's supposed to do with a citizen who is under his protection. So this massive entourage is put together, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen to take Paul to Caesarea, which is the imperial capital of Palestine, in the middle of the night so that they can escape the assassins. That <laughs> <laughs> This is quite an undertaking to rescue Paul from the mob violence of Jerusalem. Right, And then here we get, this is interesting, we have a number of political letters between Roman Gentile administrators. So again, you know, who knows if Luke somehow had access to these or if he's making them up or if this is, you know, the nephew overheard this discussion taking place. We don't know. But anyway, so again, we have a, a clear statement of Roman rule of law here. So uh, Claudius Lysias, this is the... Um, the person uh, installed in Jerusalem is writing to His Excellency the Governor Felix. That's the one installed in Caesarea. He writes, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. We've heard this from a Roman governor before. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So what we're going to see here, and this should be, you know, ringing all of your bells from the Gospel of Luke, which is that there are false accusations made by Jews against our hero, in this case, Paul, rather than Jesus. And the Romans are utterly baffled at what they're so upset about and are trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with him because they can't see that he has done anything wrong. 
So Paul safely is taken to Caesarea. He gets there okay. He has an audience before Felix, and we have this very long, moving testimony um, where Paul tells what he's been through. In turn, uh, Tertullus, one of the Jewish leaders, basically issues false testimony against him. Again, that should remind you very much of a trial we heard about at the end of the Gospel of Luke. But in the end, Felix, who it says have, has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which is what um, they, the word used for Christianity in the, in the book of Acts, um, says, well, I'm, I'm not going to decide right now. So they spend some more time talking with um, Paul, Felix, and his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. But um, apparently Paul's p- pushing pretty hard. Felix gets alarmed and says, just go away. I'll talk to you later. And it says he's kind of hoping that Paul would bribe him. So again, <laughs> a little uh, fly in the ointment of the Roman justice system that uh, basically Paul ends up stuck in prison for two years because Felix is hoping to get money. Yes, due process, once again. So what ends up happening is that um, Paul is in prison so long that Felix is out of office and a new guy comes in named Festus, who finds out he's been stuck with this prisoner and brings him out and says, like, do you want to go back to to Jerusalem for trial? And Paul says, no, definitely not. Um, And... uh, Festus wants to do the Jews a, a, a favor, and that's why he a- asks it. But Paul insists, finally, he does not want uh, temple justice to be the deciding factor. And he says this famous line, I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus talks it over with his counsel and says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, Dad, I have to say, this line, one of the more famous ones from Acts, has always thrown me off because it feels like, as Chekhov said, it's the rifle on the wall in Act 1 that you're waiting to go off in Act 3. <laughs> you know, like, right. if 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 he's appealed to Caesar and, and Festus says, all right, you'll go to Caesar, you expect the story to end with Paul and then having an audience with Caesar. But that is, in fact, not what happens. So although there's still a couple more chances for Paul to give testimony before this Jewish king Agrippina and probably his sister Bernice, and he tells once again, uh, for the third time, his road to the Damascus story, leading um, Festus to conclude, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. All right. Finally, Paul says, no, I wish you and everyone could be as I am except for these chains. Maybe Ignatius picked up on that line. Uh, Agrippa and uh, Festus conclude, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So once again, we're we're set up to expect that um, Caesar is going to be part of this final story. But that brings us now to chapters 27 and 28, the ending of Acts. And Dad, I'm going to hand it over to you now because uh, I think you were particularly excited about finally having a window into why Acts ends the way it does, i.e. not with Paul in confrontation with Caesar. Of course, always been a great deal of confusion about the story in Acts 27 and 28. The uh, ship sails, it goes through storms, it shipwrecks. Paul lands on the island of Malta where he survives the bite of a venomous serpent and then they're finally rescued, safely arriving in Rome. And then in Rome, Paul uh, is under house arrest and lives for two whole years at his own expense under house arrest, freely preaching the gospel in Rome. And that's how the book ends. Unhindered. Unhindered. You're preaching the gospel without hindrance, with all boldness and without hindrance. So, you know, especially if you're preoccupied with the question of historicity. I don't want to totally dismiss the question of historicity, but I want to just say it's a, it's a modern preoccupation which can really put blinders on us so that we don't see literarily what is going on here in the conclusion of this book. The expectation has been created that Paul is in store for great suffering, and that his destination will finally be in Rome, as you mentioned earlier, where he will testify, testify before Caesar, and then the expected denouement is martyrdom. But Luke records none of that, and instead he just slows down the narrative course dramatically uh, with this extended account of the sea journey from the coast of Palestine all the way to Rome. 
and all the grammatical things that happen there. What Trotsky shows us is that in all these uh, uh, twists and turns, which slow down the narrative action, uh, when we're all saying, "Come on, get to the conclusion, get to the testament, the trial before Caesar, where he testifies and then is uh, sentenced to death and executed as a martyr," that's what we want to hear about, right? That's what we're dying, to, as it were, dying to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. That's what we all want to hear, and that's why he he reports classical historical critics like Otto von Harnack saying the conclusion of the Book of Acts is a total letdown, utterly unsatisfactory. Why did he end it this way? Probably because he didn't want to put the emperor in a bad light, something like that. But what uh, Truftgruben shows us is that in all these twists and turns, these uh, slowdowns on the way to the conclusion, Paul is given new opportunities to evangelize, to proclaim, to converse, to bear witness, to testify. By this time, as you mentioned in the book of Acts, Paul has had the chance to tell of his conversion three full times before Roman officials the second two times. And uh, at one point, Festus or Agrippa is so enamored or so taken by Paul's preaching, he says, are you trying to make me a Christian too? And that's (laughs) what Truffgruben points out is that these uh, twists and turns in the story slow things down enough for us to see that Paul turns the uh, misfortune into opportunities to proclaim his gospel. And that's how the book ends. It ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome, even though he's under house arrest, uh, with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, what are we to make of that? I would suggest that Luke's audience is well aware of the fact that Paul was executed by Nero. That was common knowledge in the early church. And Luke did not need to inform people that Paul met this fate. What he did need to do was to save Paul, who died under Nero in Rome, save Paul for the future. The book of Acts is the literature that saves Paul for the church. Now, why do I say that? By the time that Luke is writing, the party the early party of the Gnostics has come on the scene. And there are certain passages in Paul that they love because they can interpret them in a, in a fully Gnostic sense. Paul is in danger of being stolen from the early Catholic Church by the Gnostic movement. And that's along the same lines that the... Uh, Docetist teaching that Jesus did not really come in the flesh, did not really suffer in the flesh, and that true disciples of Jesus therefore also escape from suffering in the flesh. That's the Gnostic threat that the Luke Acts is responding to. And by graphically displaying for us in the course of the book of Acts, Paul's sojourn in the flesh with all the twists and turns and showing us that even on all the negativities, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the floggings, and so forth, it's all under divine control. It's all fulfilling the destiny that God has to conform Paul to his Lord by his own path of suffering and and faithful witness. Secondly, Luke is writing at the time where the mob violence that we see depicted narratively in in Acts uh, has been suppressed uh, by the Roman law and order. Specifically, I'm talking about the Jewish revolt, the conquest, Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That too, like Paul's death, that too is common knowledge. You don't have to drum, Luke does not have to drum that fact Uh, into his readers. They all know it. And what Luke is trying to do is to save early Christianity 
from unsavory associations with the Jewish revolt. I think that's behind a lot of this. And so the preference, as you've pointed out, for Roman law and order over the vigilante justice of insurrectionaries, uh, zealots, and so forth, is patently true. And here Paul is made into someone who, even though he suffers from the corrupt justice of the Roman Empire, in principle supports the rule of law uh, and just government. And the third factor I'd like to mention is that something we see in the second letter to Timothy, another post-Pauline document of early Christianity, which is all about the martyrdom of Paul. If you read Second Timothy, you'll see that Paul is preparing for his martyr's death in, in this document. And in it, he mentions in passing that all deserted me at my first hearing. Nobody showed up to support me, at, presumably in Rome before the emperor. All of his comrades had deserted him. Did Paul die in Rome in disgrace? Was Paul, like some regarded Jesus' death on the cross as the divine judgment against Jesus? Was Paul disgraced by his execution at the hands of the Roman state? Was Paul therefore discredited? I think Luke is also trying to save Paul for the future by showing that his death, that he does not report but everyone knows about, his death was a consequence of his faithful witness. I think those are all things that we can say positively about the way that the book of Acts concludes. That's all really interesting, Dad. Um, I, I, the, the question of Paul's death is really intriguing to me because, so Paul's death is alluded to constantly in Acts. It's like such a big theme, yet we never get to it and we're never told how it happens. And as you mentioned, there are allusions to it and expectations of it in, in the authentic and post-Pauline letters as well. But when I, I was looking into this, Clement of Rome, which is one of the earliest post-biblical writings, mentions Paul's death, but not how he died. Ignatius says he died a martyr, and it's only in the late um, second century that I can't remember who it was, but it's specified that Paul died a martyr executed by Rome and probably by Nero. So, I mean, absence of evidence is not proof of anything. But it is, I was really puzzled and interested by the fact that there's all this talk about Paul's death and yet a, a kind of reluctance until very long, like 150 years after the uh, events to really nail down who did it and why. So whether that means, you know, maybe maybe he didn't die a martyr's death and, and that was retrospectively put back on him or inferred, I don't know, or maybe it means that it was, uh, you know, quite possibly awkward to, to talk about um, for various reasons within the church or if aspects of it was suppressed. But it's clear one way or another that even if you never see it happen on screen, as it were, Paul's death, as you said, is a major issue to be managed. And I, I, I'm quite intrigued now by the thesis that he died in disgrace the way Jesus Jesus died in disgrace, and so one of the things that's happening is Luke is not only rehabilitating Jesus, but also Paul. In parallel to each other, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so speaking of, of parallel, so another really interesting thing I realized in my recent work on this last bit of Acts is that there's a major possibility for soteriological confusion in Acts and its ending around Solo Paul on his way to trial and Caesar. There are so many parallelisms between Jesus' story and Paul's story. And so just as a thought experiment, I thought, well, okay, so Jesus dies in Palestine quite a bit more obscure because he only, you know, travels in this this small area of Galilee and Judea. And he's executed by a provincial Roman governor and, you know, could easily have been forgotten. But then Paul travels all over 
known civilization. He knows lots of people. He's a citizen. He's well-connected. And all these things keep happening that are in parallel to what happens to Jesus, as I even mentioned as I was going through, like uh, appealing for the, the false accusations of the temple leaders and then appealing to Roman justice. What I see is like uh, a major problem if Paul's ending is identical to Jesus' ending. There would be a major source of confusion about who exactly is our Savior. And there are Twice in Acts, people mistake him for a god. There's the the Lystrans who try to sacrifice oxen to him, and he he's really upset. And then on Malta, even uh, because he's bitten by the viper and doesn't die, they conclude that he's a god. So I think that's Luke signaling to us that those who were fans of Paul maybe had a hard time separating out the Savior from the Apostle to the Savior. And so if if Luke brought us to uh, an ending with Paul's heroic martyr's death, it would be very easy to infer that there is something saving and unique about Paul's death in the way that it is not. It is a martyr's death because of the name of Christ, but it is not. It, it, the, the significance of his death is not at all like the significance of Jesus' death. You know, that's, that's very interesting, Sarah. I, I think Luke... It writes before someone like an Ignatius of Antioch develops or articulates a clear theology of martyrdom. Also before the Gospel of John, uh, the, the theology of the martyr is a very important part of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to the truth, he says before Pontius Pilate. Jesus is the exemplary martyr. Uh, in the original sense of the word, as one who bears witness, uh, at the, even at the cost of life. And I think Luke is also writing before the book of Revelation uh, develops its theology of the martyrs. So Luke is still in a situation in which the confusion of Christians with insurrectionary Jews from the revolt is a open possibility. I mean, how can the how can the Gentiles know the difference between these two groups of Jews? Right, uh, right. And they're they're baffled by it all. And so the the testimony to the uh, non I hate to modernize this way, but the nonviolent way of Jesus of suffering witness to the uh, transcendent truth of God, uh, which never uh, then resorts to taking, storming the kingdom by force by taking the sword into one's own hand that would rather suffer evil than commit evil. That's, I think, part and parcel of the message of the book of Luke, the books of Luke and Acts. Also, that for that message to have a possibility, the divine demand that the state act according to the rule of law and basic justice is implicit. And I think you've picked up upon that. That doesn't mean the state is de facto doing the divine will. It does mean de jure, the state is obligated uh, to provide that rough justice, which uh, protects the innocent and punishes the wicked. Yeah. I really like that, the idea of, of Luke Acts being written before before a clear theology of the martyr emerges of the martyrs emerges and also trying to establish what relationship um nonviolent followers of Jesus have to insurrectionists. That that really makes a lot of sense of the story. The final thing I, I would say is that this ending of, of Acts with Paul preaching unhindered, uh, that, that actually is the, the very last word of Acts, is unhindered. So, you know, in a, a work as literary as Acts, that's no mistake. To end all of Acts with Paul preaching and all, as you mentioned, all the stations along the way where he's preaching, I think this shows us the narrative unity of the entire book of Acts, which is that the drama of the church is actually the drama of preaching. Acts is a book full of sermons and full of many different preachers who in their many and various ways witness to many and various audiences from, you know, the super Jewish audience in Jerusalem to, you know, high Roman officials who are Gentiles and 
and every every group in between. And I think one of the the um, comforts that Axe is trying to offer is that if the drama is the preaching of the word, then even when Paul is taken away from the scene or Peter simply vanishes from the scene, nevertheless, the preaching goes on. And that, that actually is going to be the ongoing story of the church. You don't have to bring Acts to a neat closure because the business of preaching will continue on and on. And um, although Paul was perhaps a little optimistic about reaching all the Gentiles in his own lifetime, it turns right. out there are a lot more Gentiles and a lot more kinds of Gentiles than anyone ever could have imagined. But that is going to be the ongoing story of the church, which is preaching to all the Gentiles and preaching continues even when persons go to their grave by whatever means. Verbum Dei Monet in Aeternum, the word of God endures forever. Exactly. Paul and Jesus both got their best moves from Isaiah. (laughs) (laughs) Very good, Sarah. I think we've brought this one to a nice conclusion. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, anyway, so there you go, listeners. Glad to finish off that book for you. And again, I I just want to add, nothing in this last third of Acts appears in the Revised Common Lectionary. If you've never heard that that before, this is why. So crack out your Bible and and give Acts a read. It's exciting. It's like Treasure Island at the end. (laughs) So next time on the show, our topic will be illness and healing. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.